we're going to study tonight about specifically the King Saul. There is uh, a few things that are all happening around the same time that are causing me to feel old. And I feel like I'm really loud. Am I really loud? Was I this loud when I was singing? Wow. So I'm usually flat, so that's not good. Um, no, but uh, there, there's just some things that are making me feel old. And, and really noticing the passing of time. One thing is I got new glasses. And these glasses um, are stronger, prescription. And they're, they're not transitions like the bifocals, but they're on their way to that. Do you guys feel bad for me? I'm feeling very old. Um, this past week I was sick. And there's nothing like feeling sick that makes you also feel kind of old too. And a little bit of a pain in my back. And can I just complain to you guys tonight? Just, can I just sit and complain a little bit? We're coming up on the 70th anniversary of our church. How, is that cool? That we are in a church that has is, is been around for 70 years and uh, that I think is as is, is healthy as it is and doing good and God's, God's growing us. And, and I'm just so, and, and that's all just God's doing. Um, yesterday, Paris Hanners and Al Sanchez came to the church and they chipped away at the mortar that's around the uh, dedication sign. Out here if in the lobby, there's a, there's a fireplace. Um, and I guess back, it, would, it must have been before 2000. I was around, somebody, I'm sure somebody here can tell us. Uh, where that fireplace is and it goes to the, where that goes to the, um, to the bath, like if you were to take the edge of that wall on the, on the fireplace and go to the bathroom and then edge of that fireplace and go to where the security desk is. That was all exterior wall. And then there was out all of what is now the, the resource area where the bookstore is and the coffee area was all outside. Okay. So what year was it that you put the glass in? It had to be around. So, so in 2000, uh, I guess Pastor Milioni led the church to do a, a time capsule and they, they wrote a bunch of letters and they put it in a Plastic. Some of you guys are shaking your heads, like because I know some of you wrote in it, and and then they put that behind the this dedication of the building sign that's there. And I found out that Al Sanchez and um, was one of the ones who put that put that in. And so he and Paris came yesterday, and they chipped out the the mortar so that it didn't break, and they pulled out the plastic um, bag that had hundreds of letters in it, some of them to the church, some of it to specific people. And so we've got that. We're going to try to figure out. I didn't know what was behind it. Somebody just told me time capsule. I thought there was going to be like a safe full of money. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what was in there, but um, no, there, I didn't know what was going to be back there. They pulled it out and there it is. And so um, we're going to figure out how we're going to use that to Actually, one of the things that's cool, I saw there's some that were written to Trinity Baptist Church. And one of the first ones I opened was a letter from Pastor Milioni to whoever's the pastor in 2025. So if I make it that long, it's to me. And, uh, and so that was a really interesting thing. I'll sh I'm sure we'll share that with you. But, um, but man, it's amazing how fast time goes, isn't it? And I think about like they wrote in 2000, a bunch of you, some of you did that. And, and uh, 
it, it's uh, in, in March of 2000 is when they did that. And in March of 2000, I was in uh, my freshman year at Baptist Bible College. So it's just amazing how fast time, time goes by. Time, time marches on, doesn't it? And then last week, the other thing that's kind of making me think about how fast life goes and, and that is last week, my papa, Evans, died. And uh, six months from when he died, before he died, my grandma died. And then in between my grandma's death and my papa's death, my, uh, his sister, my great aunt, uh, who was one of the other couples that lived out on the ranch where they've lived my whole life. My papa was born on this ranch. What we, my uncles call it a ranch. I don't know who he ever called it a ranch, but if you've got a barn and you've got cattle and pasture land in, in Texas, you know, I'll call it a ranch. Why not? And uh, so anyway, uh, he was born on that property and, and he went home to be with the Lord. All the people that lived on that property in, of that generation are now gone. And my papa was the last one to do that. Um, Ten years ago, I had all seven of my, I have seven grandparents. My, my first mom died. My, my dad had, uh, I had a grandpa and a step-grandpa that I call grandpa. So all seven of my grandparents in the last ten years, all of them except for one now are gone. And uh, I say all that to say this, time is fleeting, we don't have forever on this earth, right? Now, everybody lives forever somewhere. Amen. Everybody lives forever somewhere. But when it comes to life on this earth, it's, it's not forever. Um, I look across the, the auditorium tonight, and I have not been here for very long, but I've already been a part of many of your lives in terms of walking with you through people dying, through funerals, through... Sometimes kids, sometimes parents, people die, and it's not easy. Um, you and I will experience one of two things. We're either going to experience our own deaths or the rapture. Amen. Who votes for the rapture? <laughs> That'd be sweet, yeah. I vote for that too. Um, but I've literally, I've thought about it last week. Like, I'm a to-do list guy, and I've thought about, like, I got the call. My papa's gone, and you're going to do the, you're going to do the uh, graveside. And, and, I, and I wrote on my task list, write a, write a graveside uh, sermon for my grandpa. And I've done that now for five of my seven grandparents. Done their funerals, been a part of their funeral. And so at some point, someone's going to write your obituary. Short of Jesus coming back, at some point, someone's going to write your, and I know like I'm saying all this and I know you guys all over here, especially maybe my kids too, you're probably thinking, man, he sounds old. Like that's kind of old and cranky. This doesn't seem like a kid's service. This seems like a old people's service. But the truth of the matter is, man, I, it didn't seem like it was that long ago that I was in high school. And, and I was much skinnier and I could do a lot more. And I was like, the older I get, the better I was, right? Like that's how that is. And, and, uh, it's just amazing how fast time goes. Someone's going to write your obituary. What are they going to say? What's going to be your epitaph? It's almost a cliche question, but tonight we're going to see the death of King Saul. And Saul's epitaph is a sad one. Um, 
it's, it's one that sums up a tragic life of this man who played such an important role in David's life. He was a, a king who could have been David's role model and mentor. David could have had a huge impact, uh, had been hugely impacted in the right way by Saul. But that's not Saul's, instead of being a mentor, he was almost a murderer of David. <laughs> you know, almost a totally different kind of thing. And, and um in 1 Samuel, I had you turn to 31, but if um, this, this verse will be on the screen. In 1 Samuel 26, 21, Saul said this about, about himself. Then said Saul, I have sinned, talking to David, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, here it is. Here's the, here's the epitaph. I have played the fool. I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Saul's life was marked by foolishness. Uh, how he dealt with, I mean, you think about the potential a guy like Saul had when the children of Israel were deciding whether or not they wanted, they, they decided they wanted a king. And in deciding that they wanted a king, um, Samuel the prophet was trying to talk him out of it. In fact, Samuel was hard. Uh, Samuel was kind of hurt by the idea that these guys wanted a king. And, and he said, you know what a king will do? The king will tax you. The king will just, uh, he'll, he'll take all these taxes from you. The king, will, um, the king will take your kids and put them to war. He's, he's given them all this list of reasons. And God essentially says, just, you're going to give them a king. We'll give them a king. And so that's what ends up happening. But when they pick, when they pick Saul, what, what did they say was notable about Saul? Do you guys remember? That he was tall, that he was head and shoulders above all the rest, you know? Which, uh, who knows what that meant in those days, how tall were they? But related to how tall the other ones were, he was head and shoulders above them. Saul led a foolish life and it ended in this tragic, tragic death. What was foolish about Saul? Saul was selfish, when you study Saul's life through the scriptures, it just seems as if Saul was all about Saul. Saul was inauthentic. We're going to even see in this particular um, narrative that even to the end, he's concerned about what people thought about him or what others thought. Or, or, or he was more concerned about what other people thought than what God thought. He was more concerned with looking good than with being good. Um, and Saul was focused on the temporary more than the eternal. Saul, Saul didn't, he, he was less interested in God and more interested in himself. And so we're going to see something there in the narrative tonight about, about his death. And, and, and here's the idea of what I want to, I want us to walk away with tonight. Um, we have from here to our deaths or from here to the rapture. Again, I vote rapture, right? That'd be sweet. But whatever time we have left, we have from the present till we go to be with Jesus to do something on this earth and make a difference for the Lord. And, and for some, that may be a lot longer. I'm not gonna point to anybody else, but for some in the room, it may be shorter, right? We're all at different times and levels 
what are we going to do in terms of living that will make it so that when we get there that we'll go, man, I'm glad I spent my life in a way that, that, was, that was in the eternal and that, that mattered. We should live wisely with the end in mind. Let's learn from these three deaths. The first death I want to talk about is Saul's death. Saul's death was a tragedy. This first point is basically going to be telling you the story of what happened. First Samuel chapter 31 and letters A through E in your, in your handout really just kind of outline the story of what happened. The first thing you see, this is the last chapter in my Bible, I turn it over and man, I can see I'm at the end of 1 Samuel. This death of Saul kind of leads to a new chapter in the way that Samuel tells the story of Israel. You find, uh, you find here Saul and he's battling. And who is he battling with? Well, verse one, now the Philistines. Um, I'll say this and then I'll let it go and we can have a conversation later if you want. But the word Philistine and the word Palestine are related. Um, the Philistines fought against Israel. Not much has changed. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. Are they winning or are they losing? They're losing, right. Verse two, and the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, Saul's sons. So you have now some crucial deaths, you know, not just um, is the army losing, now even the sons of Saul are losing. Verse three, and the battle went sore against Saul and the archers hit him and he was sore wounded of the archers. Now, if you let this play out in your mind, and I know this is a, a family service, but now we've got Saul who's wounded to the point that he's been shot. He's got arrows. If they're not still in him, he's taking them out and he's, he is not doing well. He's about to die. That's the battle that we see happening. Verse four, we see the request. Read it with me. Then Saul unto his armor bearer, draw, said unto his armor bearer, draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith. What does he ask him to do? Hey, could you murder me? Could you kill me? Why? Lest these uncircumcised come. Who's he talking about? The Philistines, these Gentiles, these pagans lest they come through and thrust me through and abuse me. The idea there is, I don't want, if you kill me, you're gonna kill me mercifully. I'll die quickly. If these Philistines get me, they're gonna kill me slowly. They're gonna torture me. What does his armor bearer say? But his armor bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Now, why would he be afraid? He, he's afraid because if people hear that he killed the king, they may not understand the circumstances behind it. During this time, he, you, have, you have David who has opportunity as 
the anointed next king, David had opportunity over and over again to kill King Saul, and he never did because he says, it's not for me to touch the Lord's anointed. It's not for me to take Saul's life. That's for God to do. God, God is going to oversee what happens there. And so I, I believe maybe this armor bearer, we don't know the reason why, but maybe he's just worried about like some bad thing happening to him because he's the one to kill the king. And it, it would be a hard thing to kill, kill somebody that you honor and that you love. That's what's happening. So what happens instead? Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell upon it. Instead of, instead of doing, he kills himself. There's the death. You see that in verse four, four through six. He, he kills himself, verse five. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. Verse six, this is a devastating verse, isn't it? Aren't you glad you came to church tonight for all? <laughs> this is just so exciting. So Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men that same day together. What a path of destruction. Saul died, his kids died, his armor bearer, that would have been someone he trusted, highly died, all of his men dead all that same day. Um, if you're a military king, is this, is this an, are you excited about this? Is this, this isn't like, oh wow, what a great king he was. He, he's, he's died. And look at the devastation that follows verse seven. This is going through seven through 10. The first thing we see is the reaction of the others of Israel. Verse seven, and when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley and they that were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. What does that mean? That means that the children of Israel are like, oh no, not, not all of them. Which ones? The ones on the other side of the valley, the other side of Jordan. This isn't everybody in the nation, but this is a significant part. They all see Jonathan's dead, Saul, Saul's dead, his kids are dead. The arm, We're just gonna flee because now there's no hope. Now, now there's, the military is not what it ought to be. The Philistines are winning. The Philistines have won. And if they show up, kind of like what's, Kind of like what Saul was doing, if they come and get, I don't want them to torture us, to kill us, to beat us. So we're just going to leave what we've got and we're going to run away. Just let them have the cities, okay? Imagine like, it would be like us. Oh no, the Michiganders are coming. They're going to take over. We don't want to face them, those people from Detroit, you know. So let's just abandon Finley and run away. And that's essentially what happens, right? So there's an abandonment of the cities. And then in verses eight through 10, this is, this is also, this is, this is pretty rough. Verse eight through 10, you have this Philistine adoration of their own gods and the chance to promote themselves and their gods as a result of what happened with Saul. Verse eight, and it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to this to strip the slain, what does that mean? That means when you're in war and you're, you're killing your enemy, your enemy's falling and there's valuables on their person. They may be weapons, 
shields, different things going on. There may be money in their pockets, whatever, whatever. And so now that they've kind of taken care of business and they've won, now they're coming back to get all of what they want, right? When they come back to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Goboa. Now you see, oh, look, they come upon, here's Saul, here's our, our sworn enemy, here's the king of Israel who has the God of Israel, and man, this is exciting, we beat the king, you know. Anybody ever play chess, right? It's one thing to get a pawn, it's another thing to get a rook, it's, it's really cool to get the king and the queen, right? Like that's, what, that's, where, that's what's going on here. Verse nine, these are like not bedtime Bible stories, okay? Here it is, verse nine, and they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their, what does it say? Idols. And among the people, which people? The other Philistines. What is he doing? This is our chance This is literally what they're doing. Their God is small, our God is big. Our people are greater than their people. Is that true? But it's it's at this place because of the way that Paul led his life, or Saul, sorry, Saul led his life. Verse 10, they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So they literally use his remains and the remains of his kids as decoration on the wall. Kind of PG-13, isn't it? So there's the devastation of what's happened. Now, interestingly, before Saul was king, he had, he had um, done valiantly for some of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead um, I can give you more about that at another time. But you'll find in verse 11 that these inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, who I think had at least some respect for Saul and respect for his house, this is what they did. We see this in verse, I call this part the reaping because there were some good things that Saul did that now he's going to reap benefit from, even though it's posthumously, it's after his life. Look at verse 11. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. These are some, some people. Jabesh Gilead, I think, has some connection with the tribe of Benjamin, my favorite tribe. Um, the, uh, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He had done good for them before. They go, okay, this is not good that these people are being, that Saul's body is being used to promote other gods and to dishonor our God. So what they did is they took and, it was, and they burnt them probably because he had been beheaded. So it was kind of a, a, it's kind of like having a closed casket. It's like, you don't want it to, let's just burn it. And then they buried the bones, which again, in Jewish, in the Jewish culture, they don't, they don't do the, the 
um, ashes. They don't, they don't uh, in our Jewish culture, even in Christian culture, I don't think it's wrong to, um, what am I trying to say? Cremate, correct. It's not necessarily wrong to cremate. The Bible doesn't say don't cremate. But we bury, why? Because both Jews and Christians believe in a resurrection, right? So Paul calls it planting in hope. That when we that when we we bury, we're saying something about what we believe that's going to happen. There's hope here, that this that this body is going to be resurrected in the end. And so here, these people of Jabesh Gilead are honoring Saul, um, even though he had done wrong. They're honoring him by burying him and and trying to, and then they mourn for him for seven seven days. That's a tragic tragic story, isn't it? It is not a fun story. We see Saul kind of reaping. And what's interesting is even like, even when you think about in verse four, he's worried about, he's worried about um, being tortured. I think he's also worried about facing people. Uh, these, and he calls them uncircumcised people. He, he's, he's, they're his enemy, and he doesn't want to even face the, the humility of being, being killed. It, that's just where he's at. Charles uh, Stanley, on, in talking about, not Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, in talking about Saul's death, made some comparisons to, between, and some contrast between Saul's life and Christ's life. So I want to take you to number two. Christ's death, an analogy, comparing Saul's death to Christ's death. Okay, kind of interesting. I just gave these to you without blanks, and I thought that they were very interesting, and I think that would be helpful to you. Saul's death appeared to be the end of all national hope, yet it was not. You, you, you see that back in verse number seven, right? When he gets, when, when the Philistines kill Saul, the people are like, oh, we're, here come the, when the Philistines uh, kill Saul, kill his family, when the, they seem to be taken over, they're like, and you know what? We, we just got to abandon our cities. That's, <laughs> that's kind of how they take it. But it wasn't the end. Of, it was not the end of hope. There, David is going to go to the throne. God's going to do something amazing. Similarly, Christ's death appeared to be the end of all national and spiritual hope to some. Remember the, uh, Remember the, the disciples, where were they after Jesus died? They're in that upper room. They're, 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 they're just devastated, devastated, yet it wasn't there. Saul's death appeared to bring the final victory for the Philistines. When Christ died, this may have been our adversary's perspective. They may, the Philistines thought, maybe we won, right? Like this is going to be, Satan, maybe when Jesus died, he, he probably thought, hey, I've won. He didn't win. Saul's death paved the way for an entirely new plan of operation and ushered in David's kingly line. When Christ died, a whole new operation moved into action and set in motion our great salvation. Saul's death opened the opportunity for another, namely David, who would not otherwise have been included in God's line of blessing. Christ's death opened the opportunity for Gentiles, amen, for us to be impacted. Saul's death ended an era of dissatisfaction and failure. We know that because that's what God says to, to Samuel. Hey, I want you to go anoint somebody. I'm done with Saul, right? And so when Saul died, there's that dissatisfaction and failure that's gone. Christ's death ended an era of law and guilt and ushered in an age of grace. Saul's death displayed the foolishness of man. 
Christ's death displayed the wisdom of God. Isn't that good? So good. That leads us to number three. The last thing I want to talk about tonight, very quickly, our death. Our death. We talked about Saul's death, a tragedy. Christ's death, an analogy. Third, our death, a reality. While he was the chaplain of the Senate, Peter Marshall once told this story, which underscores death's inescapable reality. He told of an old legend of a merchant who had a servant that he sent into town in Baghdad. He went down into Baghdad, and when he was there, uh, he bumped into a woman who, when he turned around, it says that he, he, he made a threatening kind of gesture, and he got scared. He realized that this woman was death, and he went back to his, it was a death personified. It's a legend, okay? It's an illustration. Don't get mad at me. So um, he goes back to his master and says, Master, I got to get, I got to go. I got to get to Samara tonight because when I was down in there, there was, there was, death was there and, and it, it was threatening me and it looked like I'm, it was going to take my life. I got to get as far as away. I'm going to go to Samara. Give me a, a horse. I'm going to go to Samara, ride into Samara and hide there so death doesn't get me. So he lends him the, the horse and he takes off. That same Merchant goes down to Baghdad and he's down there in the marketplace and he sees death and he goes to death and says, why did you threaten my, um, my servant? What, what are you doing? And death said, uh, I, I wasn't threatening him. I was just startled because I have an appointment tonight with him in Samara. We all have an appointment with death. We can't escape it. What does the scripture say? As it is, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. What does that mean for us? Second Corinthians says this, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perisheth, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Um, anybody notice their outward man's perishing? Yeah? And it's not bad to exercise. It's not bad to eat right. It's good to do those things. But the truth of the matter is we can invest in the temporary and at some point we're all gonna die. But when we invest in our relationship with God, when we think about the fact that there's gonna be an eternity, that there's gonna be an end, that how I live matters, man, I realize, man, God, God's got this renewing that he's doing in my life day by day. And when I invest in that, it's, it's for an eternal way of glory. Verse, says, verse 17 says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but of the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. And it's, if it's enough for our salvation, if Christ is enough for our salvation, if Christ is, is my 
my treasure, if Christ is my, my measure, if Christ is my aim, if Christ is all that I am looking for, man, then, and he's good enough for my salvation, he is good enough for my sanctification. He will grow me into what he wants me to be over time. And so here's the truth. You've heard it before, but we gotta get reminded of it, don't we, sometimes? It's appointed unto men, wants to die, and after this, the judgment. All of us are leaving, either by death or by rapture. Everyone's gonna spend eternity somewhere. And so how we live, we gotta live with the end in mind. If we're gonna die how are we going to die? We want to die connected to the way that we lived. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this evening?